1: In the words of the trade-offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system. Just trade-offs. You can find trade-offs wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Well, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello. hello, hello,
2: welcome. welcome. <laughs> Science,
0: and that is to say, physics,
1: medicine, nature,
2: space, time, brain, life, the universe.
1: Hello. This week antibiotic resistance. What's the risk and why is it happening?
2: Plus in the news the UK's new snooper charter, the man who's modelling vascular disease in a dish and what happens in your brain when you talk to God. I'm Grae Jackson
1: and I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by (laughs) ukfast.co.uk. Now, we don't normally start our shows like this, but we're breaking with tradition to ask if you will help us.
2: The Naked Scientist has been going for over 15 years now, and over that time we've created more than a 1,000 programmes, and we want to make sure that we can continue to do so.
1: And to do that, we need to meet our running costs, but we also want to bring you a new website for 2017.
2: Indeed we do, and our target to raise is £50,000 or more in the run-up to Christmas.
1: So far, we've raised... £1,500. And we would very much like to thank Eugene Pluter,
2: Nancy Barnett,
1: Cheer Roderick, Yussi Sipponen, Malta Steinberg, Gordon Hoffman, Philip Dre, Richard Thornley, Cornelia Ferredos, John Bondy, Lucy Boutelier-Design,
2: and Evan Stanbury.
1: You have been incredibly generous so far. Thank you. But we do have some way to go. Please head over to nakedscientist.com slash support.
2: Right. On to the news and first up, prostate cancer. About 50,000 cases of prostate cancer are diagnosed in British men each year. That's 10 times the number of cases of cervical cancer and three times higher than the cervical cancer mortality rate. So why is there a screening programme for cervical cancer but not one for prostate cancer?
1: Well, part of the reason is that there are some very effective markers for cervical disease which make it relatively easy to discriminate between healthy people and someone who's got cancer. But this hasn't been the case for prostate disease. Although now scientists at Johns Hopkins in the US have developed a new antibody that can home in selectively on prostate tissue. And by coupling it to a labelling molecule, it can be used to highlight prostate cancers around the body and even deliver drugs to prostate cells. Daniel Thorick led the study.
3: One of the big problems that we have in prostate cancer patient management is how do we accurately detect their disease? is their disease localized to one spot, or has it spread to many places? And then once we know what stage of disease a patient has, what can we learn about that disease in order to best treat it? That's a long-standing problem in the field of prostate cancer because um, we know that the the number of men who have this disease is very, very high, Um, but how we we treat these patients optimally is this long-standing question. And this project was really aimed towards developing a new tool to detect disease to characterize it and to monitor it
1: this is the concept of a biomarker isn't it something you can measure
3: which tells you about the disease about the disease process and where the disease is Right. So in prostate cancer, we've been very fortunate because we have a a very robust biomarker for quite a while. That is the the PSA value, so prostate-specific antigen. And so this is a protein that is secreted from prostate cells and prostate cancer cells. As men age, we start to see a little bit more of this protein leaking into the blood. And if you have cancer, the number goes up even higher. The problem is using that number... Um, can be difficult to guide therapy. So if the number of the PSA level in the blood is not very high, it can be difficult to discern if a patient has disease or not or if a patient who has disease is responding to therapy or not. Trying to improve on that test has been the main goal of this project. What we aimed to do was to be able to image individual lesions and the primary prostate to give an idea of the number of lesions and, and what molecularly was going on in those cells. How? So the way that we did this was we developed a, a novel antibody or a new antibody called 11B6. And the antibody targets a very specific portion of a protein produced by prostate cancer cells and by the prostate. And this protein is called HK2. mean they can take that antibody, we can radiolabel it or we can put a fluorescent dye on it and we can inject that into either animals or in, hopefully yeah, in the near future into patients.
1: Now, why did you choose that particular marker in the prostate to to make this antibody
3: that should recognize it? Why go down that path? So that's a great question. So finding good biomarkers is really the difficult thing. So we know that many cancer cells have aberrant um, expression of certain genes and ultimately of certain proteins. But many cells that are cancerous share all of the markers as healthy, normal cells. And so being able to select disease cells specifically is a very difficult challenge. In the case of the prostate, though, we were a little bit lucky. So HK2, the protein that we're targeting with the 11B6 antibody, is very similar to PSA. So it's specifically and only produced in man in the prostate and in prostate-derived tissues. So the only time you have prostate-derived tissues is when you have prostate cancer, So here we have a protein that is specifically expressed by the organ that we're targeting, um, and it's not expressed in any other tissues.
1: But that doesn't mean you can discriminate between a healthy cell and a cancer cell. They will both have this marker on because they're
3: both prostate cells. That's absolutely correct. But in the case of prostate cancer, we have a specialized uh, case where any prostate tissue should be removed if a patient is at high risk of developing aggressive disease. And so by... Using an antibody with an imaging agent tagged onto it, this 11b6 antibody, um, where we're able to target both healthy primary prostate tissue and diseased tissue, we get really the the full gamut. So we're able to really discern um, both malignantly derived tissue and the healthy tissue, both of which we want to be able to characterize and, and, and hopefully remove.
1: Now, will this work? That's the critical question, isn't it? Because you've done this in animals so far. Have you got now a way to translate this to human patients to see if a the antibody is safe and b if it does what it says on the tin? Will it work in a human the same way it works in your experimental animals?
3: So it's always difficult um, to, to predict that. We're we're very confident that in this case we we may have a, a really robust imaging agent to detect and characterize cancer in man. What's typically done is we take. Uh, human cancer cells and put them into immunodeprived mice. So those are mice that don't really have a functional immune system, which can allow transplanted human disease to grow in them. So that's, that's usually how imaging agents are developed. What we've done in, in these studies is we've used those models, but we've also evaluated models that look at disease in the bone. So prostate and breast cancer are very well known to metastasize to the bone, and imaging in the bone is very difficult. Our antibody works there. We've also developed genetically engineered mouse models of disease. They have a a fully intact immune system, but they spontaneously develop cancer, and so we can also use the antibody there. And finally, uh, we've already initiated a non-human primate studies. So we've done some uh, some toxicology uh, in in monkeys when we administer the antibody. We've not seen any deleterious effects.
1: It's very encouraging, isn't it? That was Daniel Thorick, and the paper was published in Science Translational Medicine this week.
2: In the last week, the UK's government's Investigatory Act became law. Known as the Snoopers' Charter, the law requires internet service providers to keep a record of all... Internet browsing history. The justification for the act is that it will help intelligence services counter terrorism. But critics point out that the information will also be shared with government departments such as HM Revenue and Customs and the Department of Transport. I'm joined by Cambridge entrepreneur and tech investor Peter Cowley. So tell us, what is it exactly that they're storing?
4: They're storing the record of where you browse, the way you looked at. So they would, for instance, store the fact you've been on the BBC website and how long you'd been there. What they're not storing in and at the moment anyway, who knows later, is which pages you've looked at, whether you've gone on the technology page, the politics page, etc., And all the internet service providers, the ones we, we log on to, will store that for up to a year. The justification is that by... Having somebody say who has committed a crime or is likely to commit a crime, looking at their browsing history will give you an idea of what they've been looking at and therefore what they might have been researching on. So, an extreme example would be bomb making. You know, you'd go onto a site which is only about bomb making, then that would then make the connection there for the uh, security forces.
2: Surely a needle in a haystack kind of scenario. I'm thinking of how many web pages I look at in a week and then times that by the population of the UK. Huge number of people and, and data there. Do you think this is a step too far?
4: Definitely a step too far. The actual the amount of data, if they can work out what your ISP was, at least they can go to the ISP. If they can work out what you connected Sorry, on. Sorry, ISP? Internet service provider. That's the person you're actually connecting to. There will be a vast amount of data. The thought of actually looking through all this data for a whole year, as you say, it's numbers. How many zeros do you want to quote? <laughs> so yeah, So, yes, to actually look through all the data will be almost impossible. But I think they will be targeting somebody at that point.
2: You might argue that actually everything's hackable these days. Nothing's really safe. So how safe do you think this is going to be with the internet service providers?
4: Very unsafe. If it's regarded by somebody who wants to hack it as a very valuable source of data, which it probably will be. Why would it
2: be valuable?
4: Well, it'd be valuable because imagine the situation where you're browsing on, say, some medical condition that you don't want other people to know about. Can, that could be used in a way that you you, you would lose out on. For blackmail, instance, blackmail, exactly, yeah. blackmail. I, w- I was thinking also your medical insurance company might be... But they w- I'm sure it wouldn't go that far. It, so it, it's, it's data that you want to keep private to yourself, your religion. There's a number of other things you could be looking at.
2: And that's not safe. This, this Information won't be safe, in your opinion.
4: Not at all. You know, all these databases are hacked. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, But you mentioned a step too far. At the moment, of course, we, in principle, trust our governments. But imagine once this thing's in place, at what point can you continue to trust the government? I mean, there have been a change of government, for instance, in the States, hasn't there?
2: Well, speaking of the States, you know, the UK is one of the most surveyed countries in the world. What's the stance elsewhere in America?
4: In America um, and Australia and Canada and New Zealand, for instance, they have a... Similar system in that they can store this data, but they do need a warrant before it can actually be accessed. At the moment, the system is set up so you just need a senior manager to say they can look at somebody's a data. A senior manager, a senior manager, yeah, that's it. Inspector rank within the police, for instance. Wow. So, and the other thing is, if if you want to hide this, you can easily. You can hide behind uh, VPNs, which is a virtual private network. Behind WhatsApp, for instance, got its own encoding it's or kitchen, crypting. Isn't it? Yeah. And um, of course, the people who want to hide will. They'll, they'll put these systems in place. An HTTPS, which is a secure site, which is used for banking, that data will not be accessible or readable. So it'll be the, the innocent people that have their data stored and the guilty will have worked a way around it.
2: Mm, it's very worrying indeed. I'd be interested to hear what you think at home. Is it an invasion of privacy or a valid protective measure? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet at naked scientists or find us on Facebook. Thank you very much, Peter Kelly, for joining very much. us. Thank you. This month on Naked Astronomy, we turn to one of the fundamental questions that's plagued scientists for decades. Is anybody out there?
5: If you're going
6: to be sort of of middle-of-the-road conservative, you'd say several hundred civilizations in the
7: galaxy. Finding life elsewhere would be another step towards relegating humanity from this pedestal of being so special.
2: Join me as I ponder the possibilities with a superstar cast of guests, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jim Al-Khalili and Dallas Campbell. Just search for the Naked Astronomy podcast.
1: It's the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Greer Jackson. Still to come, what do sex, drugs and religion all have in common?
2: But first, a new technique that enables doctors to recreate a patient's disease in a dish. And it's been pioneered at Cambridge University, where heart doctor Sanjay Sinha is working on disorders of blood vessels.
8: We take advantage of making stem cells from patients who have uh, diseases. We can actually take a skin biopsy from these patients and using those skin cells, turn them into stem cells and then we can use these stem cells to generate blood vessel tissues. Basically, smooth muscle cells are the ones we primarily study, and these are the cells that form the walls of most blood vessels. We started off looking at aortic aneurysms, and we focused on a condition called Marfan syndrome. This is a genetic disorder, so it runs in families. People who have Marfans have overgrowth of their long bones, hyperextensible joints, and in fact, it's speculated that Uh, Abraham Lincoln might actually have had Marfan syndrome. That's the sort of typical appearance of somebody. But the biggest problem that these people face is the development of aortic aneurysms. The aorta is the biggest blood vessel in the body. It's like a, a large house pipe coming out of your heart. And if that ruptures or
1: tears, it's absolutely catastrophic for the patient. What fraction of people who are affected by Marfans actually get that problem? Well, a large
8: percentage of them, actually. But the majority will have increasing aortic size. And at the moment, the only treatment that's effective for preventing rupture or tearing of these vessels is surgery. There's no effective medical treatment at the moment. And that's what we'd like to do, is to come up with a new treatment that can actually prevent aneurysms and prevent
1: such drastic surgery from being needed. And so using your technique, does that mean we'll gain potentially more insight into why the disease does what it does that's exactly what we want to do the smooth muscle cells that we make from
8: the stem cells from the patients we can see the same abnormalities in the culture dish that we see in a patient's aorta so the abnormalities with to do with breakdown of extracellular matrix connective tissues increased stiffness of the smooth muscle cells the increasing smooth muscle cell death we see all that in our culture dish as well So we can use this system now to actually study the sort of molecular mechanisms, what might be causing those abnormalities. We can also use it as a screen to say, well, what new medicines or drugs can we use to try
1: and prevent those abnormalities? Can we take a look at the laboratory where you're making these diseased blood vessels in dishes? Of course. Let's go.
8: So we keep the cells in this incubator at 37 degrees. If you have a look down here you'll see round patches of cells. Now these are stem
1: cells that we've generated from patients with Marfan syndrome. I'm looking down the microscope and I'm seeing blobs. They look like little islands if I was to look at an archipelago of islands in the ocean. What am I seeing? So you're seeing stem cell colonies. These
8: are collections of cells. As they grow bigger we can then treat them with cocktails or growth factors and then these will eventually make smooth muscle cells. How do you know when they've turned into a muscle cell? Yeah, they change their appearance. They'll start to look like long spindles, so very different in appearance to what we see here, in fact much bigger. And in fact, if you
1: then stimulate them, you can actually see the muscle cells contract. Goodness. And once you've got them into muscle, how do you then start sort of asking questions of them about the disease that they would be harbouring? Were they in a patient? We can do studies looking at the different
8: proteins that are expressed we can look at changes in the dna whether cells are alive or whether they're dying and using all of this approaches we can see whether the cells are healthy as you might expect in a healthy vessel or whether they're reproducing the abnormalities that we see in patients who have marfan syndrome
1: sanjay sinha but what does a discovery like this mean for a person who actually has the condition
9: my name is Shona Cobb and I have Marvan syndrome and I write a blog called Shona Louise. When I was growing up I went to Great Ormond Street a lot and to me that was just sort of a fun day out. That's how I associated it.
1: This is the hospital for kids in London.
9: Yeah. Um and then as I grew older I learnt more about it. I learnt about our family history and what happened with my uncle, my granddad, who both suffered aortic dissections when they were in their 30s. So I sort of learnt how important it was. And then this year it sort of became more central in my life as we discovered that my measurements were progressing towards the point where they would operate.
1: So this is the the main blood vessel coming out of the heart in you is stretching now.
9: Yeah, my aortic root is getting quite close to the point where they usually say it's time to step in.
1: And what will that mean?
9: it will mean major open heart surgery having a whole part of my aorta replaced to remove the part that has widened to stop it from bursting. So it will be quite extensive surgery and especially for someone of a young age. How old are you? I'm 19.
1: Now when you hear about a piece of research like Sanjay has done here being reported about the condition that is very close to your heart, no pun intended, what goes through your mind?
9: It's amazing for someone like me you know it's going to be up there as a day that I will remember for the rest of my life and you know I'm really not exaggerating because this is big news for me and many others we have a rare condition that we often go to the doctors and they don't know what it is or they don't know enough about it and they sit there and google it in front of us so to have someone say that they've spent time and energy looking into our condition and they've actually found something which is a big step forward you know it's amazing
1: what about the point though that for many people with these sorts of conditions it will be too late to stop them getting the kinds of complications like you have got
9: yeah I've been thinking about that a lot because obviously it is too late for me and it's too late for some of my family as well Um, but I think it brings hope for the next generations to come and there's a lot of people who have children who have only just been diagnosed with it or you know having babies and wondering if they have it to be able to have someone say you know things might be different for them is what we want.
1: Shona Cobb. So what new avenues has this ability to reproduce a patient's disease in a dish delivered to us? Sanjay Sinha again.
8: In the majority of people with Marfan's the gene is fibrillin 1 and mutations in fibrillin 1 what happens is that there's a lot less fibrillin 1 in the aorta and there's also uh, degradation and breakdown of other connective tissues that leads to weakening of the vessel wall there's also loss of smooth muscle cells and what our work has shown is that there's another pathway that we've identified mediated through a protein called p38 that's important for smooth muscle cell death and p38 is overactive in marfan syndrome and if we actually block it we can rescue this smooth muscle cell death and that's what this new approach is showing you that's what the new approach has shown us and i think it's really important And actually really exciting because there are medicines available that drug companies are developing to block P38. These have been used in clinical trials in other patients with other conditions. So we know these drugs are safe. They've never been tried in patients with Marfan syndrome. And this is really exciting because our study suggests that we could use these drugs that we know are relatively safe. So we're very close, I think, to clinical trials using this approach.
1: Very exciting. Cambridge University's Sanjay Sinha and before him, Shona Cobb. And they published that very encouraging work in Nature Genetics this week. Now, do you remember last week where we had a mystery smoothie? Our Georgia Mills thought it was made of...
10: I'm very bad at this. I think there's banana in here. And judging by the colour, maybe something like a melon or apple?
1: And guest Matt Powner, I get banana taste. I think I got melon from a little bit of texture that I had in there. Possibly uh, strawberry based on smell.
2: Now, Kirsten sequenced the DNA of that smoothie and we put the code of it online. We asked you to use that sequence to tell us what the main ingredient was. And the only person to get it right was Rodney from Australia. Congratulations, the main ingredient was melon. You also mentioned cucumber. There wasn't actually any cucumber in there, but we're going to let you off because cucumber and melon are incredibly similar in their genetic
1: code. So, bravo, Rodney. Now, as our lives increasingly shift online, we rely more and more on computers and cybercrime and hacking are on the increase as a result. Recently, there's been a very big surge in reports of private individuals and businesses having their computers hijacked by a particularly malicious process dubbed ransomware. This is where users get locked out of their machines and all of their data is irreversibly encrypted unless they pay a large fee to the hacker who then sends them back an unlock key to let them in. I spoke to one Manchester-based web hosting company who have been monitoring the situation.
11: I'm Jonathan Bowers, I'm the Managing Director of UK Fast, and we're an internet hosting company looking after thousands of UK businesses on the internet. Ransomware is essentially an attack that locks people out of their computers and can occasionally even lock people uh, out of whole business networks. The most usual way for ransomware to take hold is by somebody actually clicking on a link and downloading a virus, a piece of information that uh, takes hold of through encryption uh, the computer uh, and doesn't allow you to gain access to it. Unfortunately, as in lots of cases with internet security, it's human error that lets people into something like a ransomware attack. The victim actually clicking on a link and
1: downloading something that they shouldn't to their computer. But what will the form take of something turning up will it be an email that looks innocuous or will it be obviously something that they shouldn't be clicking on
11: quite often it will be an email and nowadays it's an email that will look fairly innocuous Uh, the sophisticated methods are really improving they're becoming much more targeted and essentially people are finding out more about your organization even occasionally sending an email that is actually spoofing the email address of somebody else perhaps the finance director within your company asking you to download a piece of information
1: What will be the average experience of a person that this happens to? Just take us through the journey that got to them having a locked computer. What does it look like? What happens to them?
11: So what will happen to somebody in this situation is that they will download something that they think is fairly innocuous, but very quickly, once that file executes on your computer, you then can't actually log in and gain access. Shortly after that, you'll receive information telling you that um, you would have to pay the ransom. It'll tell you that your uh, information's been encrypted, And unfortunately, because of the sophistication of encryption techniques on uh, computers nowadays, it's nigh on impossible for somebody to actually try and break that encryption and manage to rescue
1: themselves from the situation. And when you say ransom, what's the ransom that's usually asked?
11: The ransom will usually be in the form of something like Bitcoin, because it's easier and easier to mask uh, where that currency is going or coming from. It makes it even harder to try and track down who's doing this kind of thing.
1: And how much ransom are we talking about
11: on average? Well, the ransom itself is increasing. Around a year ago, you might have been looking at a a ransom of, say, £3,000 in order to get your whole business back up and running again. But these ransoms have actually increased in the last 12 months by about 135% um, and will carry on increasing as well as people start actually paying them.
1: Do we know who is doing this?
11: It's very difficult to say who's actually doing it. We know a lot of people are doing it and we know that the barriers to entry have come down dramatically Uh, and we'll find that a lot of people that are doing it are probably doing it for somebody else and essentially it will be an area of cybercrime where script kiddies are playing a major part. They may even not know who they are doing it for necessarily but they'll be getting a cut of the money that they make.
1: And do we know where these people are
11: based? We don't know where these people are based, and the the sophistication of cybercrime means
1: that it's extremely hard to trace that kind of thing. And based on your experience as a UK hosting company, what do you think the incidence of this is? Are you seeing an increasing
11: trend? In 2015, we had about 20 cases. In the last three months of 2016, we've had over 30 cases. I guess that would show how much this is
1: increasing. And can you unlock that data for those people, or is it literally a case of they have to pay up?
11: In the vast majority of cases with us, um, luckily that client will have taken a backup solution with us and therefore what we're more likely to advise is that they roll back to the latest backup Uh, and that will allow us to get the information back on on a fresh machine and get them going again. It means that they can actually refuse to pay the ransom and keep moving.
1: That would be your number one piece of advice, would it? A, don't open dodgy attachments if you can avoid it, but B, definitely have a backup.
11: The backup plan is absolutely crucial for people, making sure they've got a backup. But I, I would add to to the first one there, to A, because sometimes it's getting so sophisticated that, that people really need to actually be educated on the types of things that, within perhaps within a business, they should and shouldn't open. They should know whether the finance director will ever actually send you an email asking you to download something. This could be put into inductions within businesses to make sure that people are much more savvy about what they should and shouldn't download. Uh, and. And I think that would help uh, overall to protect businesses.
1: So make sure you run that back up. That was Jonathan Bowers. He's the managing director of UK Fast.
2: From ransomware to your brain. According to a new study from the University of Utah, finding God can feel a lot like sex, drugs and rock and roll. And this is because these hedonistic pursuits activate the same reward pathways in the brain as a religious experience. I caught up with Jeffrey Anderson, who made the discovery.
0: Well, billions of people find meaning and make important decisions based on religious and spiritual experience, yet we know so very little about how the brain interacts with these experiences, and we set out to study a specific type of spiritual experience termed feeling the spirit in a group of devout Mormons. Perhaps the most striking finding to us was activation of the nucleus accumbens, an area that's been termed the brain's reward center. So romantic love, parental love, winning at gambling, cocaine and methamphetamines, all of these types of experiences strongly activate the same region.
2: Is that surprising, though, because people enjoy being religious?
0: Well, absolutely. I would think that to a believer, of course, this is going to activate brain reward circuits. They're rewarding experiences, so that shouldn't be surprising to us yet where this is the first study that's actually associated those types of circuits with religious experience.
12: Jeffrey
2: came to this conclusion by popping 19 Mormons into an MRI scanner and got them to do a range of tasks from listening to religious speeches and quotes to
0: personal prayer to uh, audiovisual stimuli produced by the church that were designed to evoke the types of spiritual feelings that we set out to study.
2: And then he got them to press a button when they felt the spirit.
0: It was surprising to us how well we were able to recreate those feelings in, in the scanner. It's, it's kind of a private place.
2: Mm, that is surprising. I know what you mean about an MRI being a private place, but it's also hugely noisy as well. Yeah, what I remember. noisy,
0: loud, artificial, and yet somehow very conducive to these types of feelings. Many of the participants that we studied were in tears at the conclusion of the scan, and they reported that these were very strong feelings that were very similar to what they had in their own religious practice or worship services.
2: Interestingly, the reward pathway in the brain lit up three seconds before the Mormons pressed that button. Their breathing deepened as well, and their heart rate quickened. But is this going to be true of all faiths, not just Mormons?
0: Well, it's a compelling hypothesis. Uh, We don't know exactly how this will differ from individual to individual or from faith tradition to faith tradition. But there's a a strong argument that there's a shared library of brain responses to religious and spiritual experiences, both adaptive and maladaptive types of religious experience.
2: I ask that because, you know, your study I think was on, was it 19 individuals? So is it really a big enough study to be then be able to say, well, you know... It might be like this. Is that not a bit of a big jump?
0: When you make a jump to other faith traditions, you know, that's going to require more studies. We need to, we need to study other groups, but the tools are mature. Religious neuroscience has the capability to answer questions that have been around for millennia. Like what? <laughs> like, what is it that the brain is doing when we feel these profound spiritual experiences?
2: For me, the big question was this. Given that feeling the spirit lights up the reward section of the brain, could it then compete with things like sex, drugs and rock and roll? Could this explain why lots of religions ban such pleasures so worshippers remain faithful?
0: Maybe those things are competitors to the reward that's induced by religious experience. It's it's so pervasive that religions have rules about sex, reward, other pleasure inducers. And on the other side, many religious traditions actually use these types of experiences to reinforce religious conviction, like peyote or or the effects of music, which is known to activate the same brain regions, social rewards and reinforcement.
2: What can we learn from this? It's interesting, sure. But could we use religion or even music to treat addicts, retrain those neural networks to get a high from something else that's less damaging?
0: That's a a really interesting idea. We know that people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, many of the treatment strategies have used religion. And there may not be too far of a stretch to imagine why, if it's a lot of the same circuitry that's involved. We don't typically talk about addiction in terms of religious experience or in terms of romantic love but a lot of the same physiology is involved there's withdrawals there's dependency there's powerful motivation of behavior and and a lot of it has to do with whether something is adaptive or maladaptive in your life
1: Jeffrey Anderson and uh, that work was published in the journal of social neuroscience
2: It's your favorite science program, The Naked Scientists, of course, with me, Greg Jackson, and Chris Smith. And now we move on to the main focus of our program. Are we really facing an antibiotic apocalypse?
1: Antibiotics are chemicals that kill bacteria but leave us unharmed. However, bacteria are evolving so that our drugs are no longer killing them. And in enough species of bacteria become resistant to sufficient numbers of our antibiotics, the treatable are going to become untreatable and relatively simple infections and also simple hospital procedures could become life-threatening.
2: How serious would this scenario be? After all, antibiotics were only discovered a little under 100 years ago and we survived up until then, so surely we can do the same again.
1: We're putting the problem under the microscope this week, starting with where antibiotics came from in the first place. Leah Messin went to see UCL microbiologist Adam Roberts. Antibiotic
6: resistance is probably as old as the bacteria themselves. It's a tried and tested evolutionary strategy to produce these natural antibiotics, which we use in medicine, in order to give the bacteria that produce them a competitive advantage over their neighbours.
13: So the majority of antibiotics we're using were first made by bacteria?
6: That's right, yeah. They're natural products which were discovered um, usually by analysing soil microbes, bacteria and fungi that live in the soil.
13: So we're talking on evolutionary timescales. What's the oldest known record we have of uh, antibiotic resistance then?
6: I can recall a paper in Science a few years ago where they looked at 30,000-year-old permafrost and the bacteria that they analysed in that sample had resistance genes in their genomes which were pretty similar to the ones that we find in clinical isolates today.
13: How widespread are these antibiotic resistance genes? Is it just limited to soil and permafrost I mean, I'm in an office right now. My office doesn't have antibiotic-resistant bacteria, does it?
6: I think it probably would, um, and we could test for that quite easily, actually. If I sent you some swabs up, and you swabbed whatever you want to in your office, your desk maybe, or your, your computer keyboard, um, and then send those back, we could grow all of the isolates that we can from those swabs, and then we could test for both antibiotic production against a range of indicator strains we have, And we can also test whether the isolates from your swabs are resistant to a whole suite of different antibiotics. So you'll have a swab-off.
13: Let the swab-off commence.
2: So should we label this so that we've got it right? So this one's my desk, right? Yes, Gray's
13: desk. Gray's desk.
2: I'm nervous about what's going to be on here. Okay, swab number one done. Mm-hmm. Swab
13: number two. I should say my keyboard's been used by a lot more people <laughs> oh, yeah, than yeah, just me. Yeah.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Right, which bit do you oh. reckon the space bars probably used yeah, the most? Space right. Bad,
13: yeah. Because my keyboard was so disgusting, we took two samples to satisfy our curiosity.
1: Oh, oh there's black stuff on it. Oh, oh,
13: that's, <laughs> that's probably just because I work so hard. All swabbed up, there was only one thing left to do. Who do you think is going to be the worst? Place your bets now. We're in a Class 2 lab this morning, so
6: we've got to put the lab coats on uh, and follow all the rules because we work with some
13: quite interesting pathogens. Adam had taken our grubby swab to see what he could grow on the equivalent of bacteria food, agar, and the results were, as expected, pretty grim. And you can see here that samples 2, 3, there's quite a lot of different bacteria. All three of the plates had grown a mass of furry stuff. One even looked like someone had sneezed on it. But interestingly, no two swabs were alike, despite the fact I swabbed the J key and the space bar of my keyboard. They're centimetres apart, but entirely different bacterial colonies.
6: So it just shows that the microbial diversity, centimetres
13: away from one area, will be different in another. Adam then grows his colonies further, before putting them onto some more agar. But this one contains antibiotics. So if they grow here... It means you have antibiotic-resistant bacteria living on our keyboards. And you can see clearly here,
6: on, from swab number four, so this is your second keyboard mm-hmm. swab, this is the one which there was a lot of bacterial cells on it, but it all seemed to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's growing on ampicillin really well. So there was antibiotic-resistant bacteria on my keyboard? Yeah. So it's growing on ampicillin, it's growing on tetracycline, It's growing on canamycin, it's also growing on chloramphenicol.
13: So it's resistant to all of those antibiotics?
6: All four, yeah, so it's a multidrug-resistant bacterial isolate. Its resistance profile is quite surprising.
13: Really? Um, Surprising in a good way?
6: Um, I wouldn't have expected something to grow on all four of those antibiotics. They're all different chemicals and they all have different activities. So to find something which
13: grows on them all is unusual. Yikes! Where's the desk disinfectant I fared pretty badly then. but what about Greer? Well, she didn't have any resistance, but she did have bacteria that were killing off other bacterial nasties.
6: The second isolate is producing something, pumping it into the agar, and that's preventing the micrococcus from growing.:
13: Micrococcus is just a weak bacterium. It lives on our skin and does healthy people no harm. However, if I had to match Greer's strain against something a little more lethal, how would it fare? we've got
6: a multi-drug-resistant E. coli. And you can see that the very small zone of inhibition. So grayer's sample has something that appears to be killing multiple drug-resistant E. coli. That's correct, yeah. So w- what we really want is something that could kill exactly this type of bug, because that's what's causing problems in the clinic. So it's really encouraging that we find something like that. So it just shows how easy it is to find antibiotics pretty much anywhere in the environment. Whether they're new and useful for medicine, obviously we'll take many years of study to find out but if we don't look we won't find them
1: that was adam roberts there and if you'd like to learn what is lurking where you live and work then actually you can get in touch with adam via his website it's swabandsend.co.uk and you can get your swabs tested now are we going to get rich from our particularly interesting strain that grew on your computer Greta?
2: well great minds think alike because i put this to liam and uh, sadly not it may have been growing on my keyboard but because adam has discovered it it belongs to him.
1: So can we actually see what these bugs look like then?
2: Yeah, it's pretty grimy. I've got some photos of the uh, petri dishes here in which we've grown. These first two are Liam's. They sort of look like yellow lichen on a petri dish, don't they? Yeah,
1: lots of little blobs of, of bacterial colonies.
2: Yummy. And then at my plate, I've got something similar, this yellow lichen stuff. But then I've also got this weird milky substance at the top corner. As well. Some
1: kind of mould, isn't it, or something?
2: Yeah, it doesn't look particularly nice. Swarming
1: all over the plate. <laughs> But what's
2: particularly interesting is this last plate that Liam and Adam discuss. And this is a plate with bacteria already on it. And we put that little E. coli killing uh, strain that was on my keyboard and we grew it. And what's really interesting is you've got this crater, this white section, and then it's got this blast zone where it's killed everything around it. Yeah, so the, the
1: bug colony from your desk is in the middle and there's nothing growing to about a centimetre all around it it's just killed off all the bugs
2: I know it's pretty amazing isn't it I'm kind of glad to have that on my keyboard maybe I'm protected against E. coli now
1: maybe we should share our (laughs) keyboards and rotate them around the office
2: (laughs) well you can see the pictures for yourself on Facebook just head to facebook.com slash thenakedscientists now how do antibiotics including those being made on my keyboard actually work here's Georgia Mills and Tom O'Hanlon with the gruesome ways in which antibiotics
10: annihilate bacteria There are five main ways in which antibiotics can kill bacteria, and they all involve exploiting differences between bacterial and human cells.
3: The first drug on the market was penicillin, discovered by Alexander Fleming back in 1929. This blocks the ability of the bacterium to build a tough outer cell wall, and this causes it to swell up and burst. And secondly,
10: below the cell wall is the cell membrane. This regulates concentrations of salts and water inside the cell. Antibiotics called polymyxins break open the membrane, causing the bug to spill its guts and die.
3: Thirdly, bacteria use DNA just like we do. And antibiotics such as ciprofloxacin, which is sometimes given to patients with urine, skin and chest infections, stop bacteria from copying or repairing their DNA, causing them to keel over.
10: Fourth, you can stop a bacterium in its tracks by ensuring it can no longer make the vital nutrients it needs to live. For instance, some antibiotics like trimethoprim prevent bugs from making the essential folic acids they need to grow.
3: And finally, number five, you can send in a drug that stops the assembly line in a bacterium's protein factory. Without proteins, a cell can't survive. Drugs like tetracycline work this way and are commonly prescribed to people with acne or chest infections.
10: So in summary, to kill a bug, you can either burst it, pop it, neuter it, starve it or just break it.
1: Makes you glad you're not a bacterium, doesn't it? But how do bugs sidestep antibiotic assassination, as we just heard? Well, Hendrik van Veen is from the University of Cambridge, and he works on how this happens. One of the things, Hendrik, you look at is what's called an efflux
5: pump. So what is one of those? Efflux pumps are really interesting ways by which bacteria can overcome toxicity of antibiotics. Might one
1: consider these efflux pumps to be a little bit like a sort of bacterial vacuum cleaner, which sits in the cell and grabs stuff, detritus, dirt, molecules that shouldn't be there, and just
5: picks them up and throws them out? Yeah, so um, antibiotics, well, are compounds that can bind to membranes, and then they can move into cells and bind on the inside of the membrane, and from there they move on to bind to targets. And these efflux pumps, they are in the membrane and they have binding sites, basically suck up antibiotics from the membrane and then throw it out. So they sound like quite bad news if they're able to,
1: to spread and propagate. Why can't we just make some molecules, which are effectively antibiotics, that will go in there and block these efflux pumps up?
5: Well, one of the reasons is we in our body also have multidrug efflux bombs and they're really important for protection of organs like the brain against toxic compounds. And so if we would be able to make inhibitors of bacterial efflux bombs, there is a very good chance that these inhibitors will also block efflux bombs in our body.
1: Oh dear, so the, the, the whole premise of an antibiotic chemical, which is exploiting differences between bacterial cells and human cells, that would be lost because if, if they're so similar to our own, then we end up causing harm to
5: ourselves in the process of trying to kill the bug. Indeed. I mean, that has been the strategy so far. I think these days people look in very great detail at the shape of these efflux bombs. And from the structures, it might be possible to make new agents that are really selective for bacterial efflux bombs and not for the human ones. So how do bacteria become resistant other than by having efflux pumps well one important mechanism is a mechanism by which bacteria can modify the, an- the antibiotic or maybe degrade the antibiotic let's just break it down how else um, you also have mechanisms where you have mutations in targets that actually make these targets no longer interact with the antibiotic So the
1: bacterium's changing shape, so the antibiotic molecule can no longer dock with whatever it was hitting before.
5: Yes. And also sometimes you have amazing mechanisms where bacteria produce a lot of target, and then these targets, some of them, escape the actions of antibiotics. And then the the pathways that normally lead to the synthesis of new building blocks for new cells still occur. So
1: basically they're just out-competing the antibiotic because they make so much of the thing the antibiotic Hits. There's yes. just no
5: way of getting enough antibiotic in to outcompete what the bug's doing. Yes, indeed. And I think it really shows that antibiotic resistance mechanisms co evolved with the use of antibiotics as a way to compete with other organisms in the natural environment.
1: Hendrik, thank you. That's Hendrik van Veen from the University of Cambridge.
2: This is The Naked Scientists with me, Greg Jackson, and Chris Smith. Still to come, we're finding out if antibiotic resistance really is as catastrophic as everyone says it will be. As Hendrik pointed out, part of the problem lies in the fact that these bacteria evolve resistance to our drugs through things like efflux pumps. But what if you could have an antimicrobial agent that evolves with the bacterium so that no matter how many clever tactics the bacterium develops, the treatment will stay in step and keep on killing it? This is what the University of Leicester's Martha Clokey has been working on. She's been using a virus that selectively attacks bacteria, these are called bacteriophages, to tackle hospital superpowers. Bugs. How
12: have you harnessed a virus to kill a bacterium? Bacteria have got natural viruses that infect them. So the same way that we have, for example, flu and Ebola viruses that attack humans, bacteria have got their own natural enemies in the form of viruses that target and kill them.
2: How do they do that?
12: They attach and then they inject their DNA into that bacterial cell. They turn that bacteria essentially into a virus factory and then they pop out and maybe 100 viruses will be released, which then specifically go and infect other members of that same bacterial species.
2: Sounds like a lovely way to die. Um, and why is this virus better than using antibiotics then?
12: Well, as I said, viruses are also natural enemies of um, Bacteria, your guest, he was talking about how antibiotics are part of this bacteria, bacteria warfare. And that's really been fairly well characterised. But this interaction between the viruses is, is, is much less known. And one real advantage that the viruses have, which in a way makes them quite difficult to study, is that they're very, very specific. As you said, I'm working with superbugs, Clostridium difficile and viruses that will infect them, won't infect other bacteria that are in us and on us.
2: I know there are multiple strains of things like C. diff. So would you need one virus to kill them all? How specific are you talking?
12: Yeah, so they're Specific within a species, and also within a sort of a subset. So, with Clostridium difficile, there's over 450 different types. Uh, <laughs> I know it's quite, but, <laughs> but generally, if you look at any one hospital at a time, you'll find there's about perhaps 12 strains circulating. Just four viruses, actually, within Clostridium difficile, are enough to be able to kill about 90% of all of the the strains are commonly found. So, you do need a number of viruses.
2: That's pretty good going. So the other thing I know that's really important about when you're using a virus is biofilms, the things mm. that bacteria create to stick to where we get infected. And I know that the, your viruses are actually taking away of that. But what's the other benefit of this technique?
12: One is the fact that they're, they're so specific. So if you take a virus, if you've got that hospital seal and I give you a set of viruses, I will just remove that one species, and not the others. So often when we take antibiotics, they make us feel very groggy because they kill a lot lots of bacteria that are performing useful functions in us. So it's a sort of selective sharpshooter, the removal of that one pathogen.
2: And how do you envisage us taking this, like a pill?
12: Um, well, yes, exactly. You could. Um, I'm working with my collaborators at the University of Loughborough and we've shown that we can encapsulate these viruses into a pH-sensitive um, polymer so we can take them, just take it the same way as you take an antibiotic. So you'd, you'd uh, take this pill full of um, viruses and they'd get through that acidic stomach because have, have to. viruses don't survive well in those acidic conditions so you've got to get them through the stomach into the area where Clostridium is causing infection.
2: And there's no danger of us being infected by this virus as well, isn't it? No, no <laughs> yeah. absolutely
12: not. No, no, the viruses need very specific proteins on the surface of the receptors um, to, to hook onto. So um, there's no way that they could jump from a, a bacteria to a human. As I say, even within the same bacterial species, they're pretty selective. <laughs>
2: awesome. So Martha, you were on the show three years ago. How has your research progressed since then?
12: Yes, no, it's done, gone really well. So I think about three, three years ago, we had a set of viruses and I was able to say, yes, our viruses look. Look like they kill the right kind of thing and now I can tell you yes now we only need four um, and it's useful having these four because they kill in different ways and the advantage to that is we really minimize resistance the other thing that we've done is we've designed lots of different complicated models to mimic how the virus kills us so we can create them in artificial guts on epithelial cells and on a whole bunch of different more complicated insects and other models and we've shown that the viruses work really well in those different models That
2: well, sounds really exciting very briefly you know the question I'm going to ask you. When are we going to be seeing this in the clinic? Or is it there already?
12: Well, there are clinical trials that are currently going on um, with other bugs at the moment. And uh, there's an EU project that, 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 that's doing a study. And there's another one in the States, in Australia. So we're seeing clinical trials now for the first time or, um, as a revival of, of those. You can have them in the clinic in some countries, Russia, Georgia. But we're cautioning on to the fact that we need to use them in the West. And clinical trials are finally <laughs> starting to, to happen. Well, I look forward to that. Maybe our future pitting
2: one microbe against the other. That was Martha Clokey from the University of Leicester.
1: Now, agents like those that Martha is working on take time, as she was saying, to develop. So what is the likely outcome in the interim? A report in 2014 estimated that some 700,000 people a year die from antibiotic-resistant infections, and if nothing gets done, that number could rise to 10 million a year by 2050. With us is Nick Brown. He's a medical consultant and a microbiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Nick, these numbers sound terrifying. Should we be worried?
7: Yes, and I think although, as you say, these are only estimates, uh, the numbers are really quite scary. The same report that you quoted also put a financial value on antimicrobial resistance and estimated that by 2050 the cost to the world would be in the order of $66 trillion dollars. These are really quite scary numbers. Is is
1: this lives lost, productivity lost, infection control mechanisms in hospital, is that where the money's going?
7: All of the above, really. So just to give two examples, if we don't have antibiotics to treat infections in patients with cancer who are having chemotherapy, then we might not be able to treat the infections that these patients have and they may not uh, survive their treatment. Likewise, if we can't do hip replacements without patients getting infections that can be treated, then why do the hip replacement? And then people can't go to work. So all sorts of effects. And these estimates try to take all those into account.
1: We made antibiotics in the first place. We've had plenty so far. It's only now become a problem when we're better technologically endowed than we have ever been. So why don't we just make new antibiotic molecules?
7: There really has been a sort of dearth of new antibiotic development in the last 20 years or so, and I think this really sort of crept up on us. We are used to simply replacing an antibiotic with another one when we can't use it anymore because of resistance, but now there just aren't any left. It takes a long time to develop an antibiotic, and in recent years a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies have decided that this really isn't an economic field that they or market that they want to be in.
1: Is that just because there's a real risk your drug is going to quickly develop resistance, therefore you might not make your money back? So much better to go for conditions like high blood pressure, stomach ulcers, because people will be on your tablets for years and you'll make lots of money.
7: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Shouldn't the government step
7: in then? It's something that is being debated at the moment internationally. Uh, Is antibiotic resistance a public health issue, not something that should be governed by a market?
1: Now, why is this happening at all in the sense that if you look at the pre-antibiotic era, before we knew about antibiotics, before we even knew that bacteria caused things like tuberculosis, death rates in London, for example, in the 1800s were plummeting. People were living much longer and they weren't dying of these infections. So why is this happening now? Can't we just live a cleaner life?
7: I I agree with you. I, I think that living a cleaner life helps prevent infection. I think improved hygiene is an integral part to the control of antibiotic resistance. If we look to developing countries where some of the um, the hygiene standards availability of sewers, uh, clean drinking water, et cetera, is not so good, then these are hotbeds for the spread of antibiotic resistance because the prevalence of infections in these areas is so high. And we do have to do something worldwide to, to improve the situation, and that will Uh, help us um, not control but to keep antibiotics sustainable into the future. I think uh, we all need to learn how to use or treat antibiotics as a scarce resource.
1: China aren't doing that are they? I mean the Lancet published a paper last year showing 12,500 tonnes of colistin, an antibiotic of last resort here in the UK for certain infections and they give it to farm animals. Which is why it is so important that we emphasise that this is a true,
7: what is called a one health issue, that it's not just antibiotic use in humans, but also in agriculture and in the environment as well.
2: I just wanted to ask you, Nick, I've got a list here of things here that people like me can do. Um, Number one on the list is finish your course of antibiotics. Why is that important?
7: It's quite possible that the infection that you had will either come back or... or relapse in, in some way and need further antibiotics in the future. And unfortunately, because resistance can develop within you as as well as within the population of bacteria, it's quite possible that the next time round uh, you won't respond to the antibiotic that you're given.
2: And number two is don't use your friends. Presumably this is because you might not be treating the correct infection. And I guess that's bad for exactly the same reasons that you've just stated.
7: Yes. And uh, I think it's very important to stress that people shouldn't access antibiotics themselves, there are a number of ways that you can do that. Some legal and not so, some so legal. Like
2: on the internet, maybe. Uh,
7: absolutely, yes. And you should always access antibiotics through a registered prescriber.
2: I didn't even know you could order antibiotics on the internet. Actually, um, number four is don't pressure your doctor for antibiotics for a cold. I know that's a virus now after this show, but is it is it just that you're making your doctor feel pressured? Is is and I suppose the other side of that is that's not very nice, really.
7: Yes. And I think it's important that people know uh, what to expect from a viral infection as well, not just that viruses don't respond to antibiotics. But uh, for example, if you have a a sore throat, you may still have symptoms six or seven days after it started. Um, If you have bronchitis, it can go on for three weeks, which is really quite a long time. And if you don't appreciate that, then you may be worried and go to your doctor expecting antibiotics it's important to get proper advice if you are failing to get better but if you know what to expect in various situations then then perhaps you'd be happier to go to a pharmacy
2: mm-hmm. so trust your doctor and lastly number five wash your hands and um, I know this is pretty obvious given what we've just been talking about but um how long for I've heard it's as long as you can sing happy birthday is that about right
7: Oh, Yankee Doodle is the other one. (laughs) Uh, Yes, probably longer than we all do it at the moment is the, is the, the, the easy answer, perhaps. But certainly, washing your hands is one of the most effective ways that you can stop any infection from being transferred from one person to another.
2: And hand sanitizer versus soap?
7: What we do in hospitals is say that if uh, your hands are physically clean, that is, they're not covered in dirt, then an alcohol sanitizer is absolutely fine. If they're dirty, you do need to wash them because, uh, unfortunately, alcohol will fix dirt onto your hands.
2: Hmm, lovely um, and the other thing to
1: bear in mind of course is that lots of these viruses that live on your skin are not vulnerable to alcohol so you end up with a pure culture of norovirus or rhinovirus or whatever else so you should just wash your hands
2: salient advice there from chris and nick brown from Addenbrooke's hospital in cambridge thank you very much and many thanks to all our other studio guests this week that was martha clokey Hendrik van veen and peter cowley
1: And we finish this week with our question of the week, and this is where you put your questions to us and we find someone expert to answer them. And this time we've been looking at Mitchell's chemical conundrum. Why doesn't water burn? It is made of two of the three things that you need to make a fire, fuel in the form of hydrogen and oxygen, and yet it doesn't burn. My mum says that it's because it is wet, yet oil... Petrol and many other wet liquids burn. Why do these liquids burn? This has always baffled me.
2: Well, it's now baffling me too, Mitchell. First, though, I think we'll need a little bit of a refresher on what actually happens when we burn something. Here's Peter Wothers from the University of Cambridge.
14: Well, this is actually a chemical reaction that's taking place between the fuel and the gases in the atmosphere, the oxygen. So, for instance, if uh, hydrogen gas, which we know is very, very flammable, this burns because it will chemically combine with the oxygen that's in the air, and this will form water.
2: Wait, a fire makes water? Chemistry never fails to surprise me. But what about liquid fuels?
14: Now, other things burn, such as petrol, a nice wet liquid, because this also contains things that can react with the oxygen from the air. So the petrol is made up of the elements carbon and hydrogen combined together, and each of those combine with the oxygen to form carbon dioxide and again more water when the hydrogen part of the petrol combines with the oxygen. So this is what's happening when things burn. Energy is released in a very violent reaction as energy comes out as the elements hydrogen or carbon combine with the oxygen from the air.
2: I'm with you. But if water is made of hydrogen, and that's very flammable, and oxygen, which sustains a fire, then why doesn't water burn?
14: Well, in a sense, the answer is because it already has carried out this reaction. The hydrogen is already chemically combined with the oxygen from the air. So there's no way it can do that again.
2: That's because the bond between two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen is so strong you need lots of energy to pull them apart. Much more energy than, say, a wood fire creates and that's why firemen use water to put out fires. The water cools the combustible material and also helps stop the fuel coming into contact with the air, the oxygen, which is the thing that sustains the fire. But, as you well know, we don't just use water to put out fires.
14: Similarly, carbon dioxide is another good fire extinguisher, especially for uh, things such as wood burning or petrol and so on, because again, this is already combined. The carbon has combined with the oxygen to form a very stable compound carbon dioxide.
2: However, if you tried to put water on a magnesium fire, that would be hot enough to break the H2O bond and it will actually make your fire worse. So let's leave any fire extinguishing to the experts.
1: Now we also heard from Brendan on Facebook who wrote to us with the correct answer and James got in touch and added, a very important thing to remember is that compounds do not necessarily take on the properties of the elements from which they are made. Chlorine is a toxic gas. Sodium is a metal that explodes on contact with water. But sodium chloride, that's otherwise known as table salt, is absolutely fine to put on your chips. Of course, ignoring the slightly elevated risk of heart failure and high blood pressure that goes with it.
2: I'll bear that in mind. Thank you, James. Next week, we'll be answering a rather astronomical question from Mikhail.
1: If in some miraculous way one were able to be standing on the surface of the moon, what kind of an arch would it create?
2: I have to admit, not something I've ever considered. Chris?
1: No, uh, me neither, <laughs> funnily enough.
2: If you have any bright ideas, do let us know. You can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum. That's com slash forum.
1: And that is it for this week. Thank you to Greya and Liam for production. And do join us next week for our Q&A. If you have a science question that you've been pondering on and you'd like us to answer, send it in and we'll see what we can do. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, from me and the rest of the crew, goodbye.